Well, it is good to see your faces. Glad you're here. Uh, thank you for engaging in love, live, and serve like Jesus, being involved in the mission and ministry that, that we see God doing, uh, even in our midst here at Friendship Church. So thank you for that. Uh, on, on a regular pattern, it has been our practice to have new members stand up. And then this, this little thing, COVID, it hit. And uh, we didn't, we kind of got out of practice. So what we would like to do is if you become, if you have become a member of Friendship Church since March 2020, we're going to ask you to stand up. We're not going to embarrass you or anything like that, I promise. But we are going to ask you to stand up. Go ahead. Thank you. I'm standing. Yeah, thank you. Stay, remain standing if you would. Because uh, uh, a couple of things. After You may have seen it when you came in. You maybe have already participated. If you did, you're naughty. But, uh, but there are donuts out there at the end of the service just as a, as a celebration. We want to thank you for uh, being a part of the ministry and mission here. And I just want to uh, pray for you. And uh, church, if you just join me as we pray. Lord, we love you. And we thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst. We thank you for uh, how you are at work and how you love us, Lord. I thank you for your word and that your word is true. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We recognize that, that we don't always hit the mark perfectly, and, uh, but we are trying. And, and we want to honor you in what we do and say. I thank you for those who have come forward for uh, membership over the course of the last year and a half or so. And, and uh, Lord, those who have said, uh, we want to... We want to follow you, and we want to do this together. We see this as a part of our, our church home, and we want to engage. So thank you for those who have done that, not just here and in this service, but in the previous service and also uh, over at Prior Lake. Lord, we, we are thankful. And we ask that you would be exalted and lifted up in our lives individually and in our church corporately. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. And again, when you have a donut a little bit later, you can thank the new members for that. So, uh, so if you get diabetes, it's their fault. Um, they're great. We are continuing our series on creation and the cross. Uh, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3 as you're turning there. Uh, let, me, let me remind us where we've been. We see this as God's story. God is weaving his story into the story of humanity. That humanity could get to know God, to know God, to understand God, to see God at work and identify his plan. And we see this right from the very beginning as God is weaving his message into, this, uh, into his word. Last week, we talked about creation and Adam and Eve specifically. Adam, Adam, meaning human, humanity. Eve being life. So we see humanity and life lived out in front of us in some very specific ways. They represent God's, God's image. So they're image bearers of God. But not just that. They also represent God's rule to creation. That's their that's their job. They have oversight or stewardship of creation. And we see that, right, in the very beginning. But then there is this unique crossroads that we're going to come to. 
And in this unique crossroads, here's what happens. God says, out of all of the fruit in the garden, you can eat, except don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's at this crossroads that we find ourselves. It's the first time in creation where humanity has the opportunity and even the decision to say, okay, am I going to be autonomous or am I going to continue in faith? Will I trust God and his plan or will I define what is good and what is evil? Will I do that? That's the crossroads that we find ourselves. At the end of chapter 2, this really unique phrase comes up that Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. And there's a lot implied to that. And it's not, uh, it's not necessarily about intimacy, but it does seem to identify that Adam and Eve are able to be with one another without any coverage, without any, any, any uh, blocking, right? There is complete vulnerability and trust between one another. Not just that but also with God, directly after the statement, immediately after the statement. We pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. If you're not there, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible and go ahead and turn there. And just so you know, here's how how our uh, message is going to go today. We're going to just slowly walk through this passage. Uh, We're going to talk about it as we go, and we're going to apply it uh, as we have opportunity. There are going to be some things that we dig in deep on, and there are going to be some other things uh, that we're going to see some immediate application and impact. That's where we're going today. We're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, and then the next verse, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. If we pause there and we're just looking at this verse, and we read it, we recognize something about uh, the serpent, that this is a part of the creation order. But also, as we read this in its passage, we're going to see that the serpent is in rebellion. Throughout Jewish and Christian uh, history, it has always been identified that this serpent is the devil. It's not just some talking snake that randomly showed up in the garden. This is Satan himself. Uh, we see that uh, implied in Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Revelation, but it's always been the practice and the belief of the Christian church that this is Satan. Listen to what he says. Watch how tricky he twists words. This is what he says. He, the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He twists several things to confuse her in this moment. Uh, I think of this as the first demonic principle. Uh, This is what it is. The serpent is not trying to get Eve to believe what he believes. He just wants her to doubt God's word. That's it. All he needs is for her to doubt God's word. If he could just get a, a little wedge in there and doubt the word of God, he's got an end. It's the first demonic principle. He doesn't have to convince you what he believes. He just wants you to doubt the word of God. And let me me communicate this to you, that this has been the, the work of Satan throughout history. 
even in the United States, even in seminaries just within the last hundred years, there has been a pushback against the Word of God. Simply put, I'm not getting into the weeds and all of this, but simply put, it's looked like this. A bunch of men wrote the Bible. Those men were flawed. Their, their flaws show up in Scripture. Theology is uh, evolved. Their, the, their theological perspectives are evolved. They've been edited throughout history. This is not the Word of God. This, these are the words of man. That has been taught over the course of the last hundred years in some seminaries. The question I would have for you is, do you think that impacts the pulpits that those seminarians preached from? Absolutely. Absolutely. All it takes is a little bit of doubt. I'm not saying, please, please hear me, I'm not saying we shouldn't question. I'm not saying we shouldn't test. Not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is doubt. Now, here's what I love about the New Testament, and I'm just going to identify a few things. When we look at the New Testament and the the copies that we have of the New Testament, there are 25,000 copies, 25,000 ancient copies that happened within 40 years of the actual writing of the New Testament with a 0.2% discrepancy rate. That's pretty significant in and of itself. And you might say, well, maybe, maybe that's how ancient literature works. It is not. Uh, in terms of ancient literature, the next highest volume of ancient literature that we have is Homer's Iliad, 1757. What I'm telling you is the New Testament has over 14 times the amount of copies that the Iliad has, which is the next closest ancient literature that we have. And you might say, well, so what? Well, here's what, why that matters. Because the Iliad... The copies that we have of the Iliad, the earliest copy that we have of the Iliad, is 400 years after it was written. Uh, imagine trying to do history from four, if I was writing history from 400 years ago, do you think you could trust that? Uh, probably not. But we have within 40 years of the New Testament a 0.2% discrepancy rate. That is sometimes referred to as a distortion rate. The reason why that would matter is because even a 0.2% could be significant. That, that could be the difference in is Jesus our Savior or uh, is it works? Well, what we learn when we look at those 0.2%, uh, the 0.2%, we see that the discrepancy is not about any theological matter. In other words, every copy is exactly the same. Most often, it's flipping of words. It's saying things a little bit out of order. Uh, Why am I telling you that? Because it matters. The Bible is not a history book, but when it speaks of history, it's accurate. The Bible is not a book of science, but when it speaks of science, it's accurate. I am telling you that I trust the Bible as God's word. That is how I approach it. That's how I believe uh, followers of Jesus should approach it. And that's what we're going to preach from God's word because the Bible is God's word. Despite the fact that the serpent starts. (laughs) The serpent starts with, did he really say it? It's been a trick from the beginning. Let's keep going. Oh, this is going to get messy quick. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, that, that's not exactly what he said. But give her a little bit of grace. She is created after God gives this statement, so she's getting her information from her husband. So give her a little bit of grace in that. So many things to say there, but we're just going to keep going. Um, Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's the irony of the situation. Adam and Eve are like God. They were created in his image. And I wish that the story stopped here. I wish Eve would have just stopped or Adam would have stepped in, whatever. I wish somebody would have said, you know what? Uh, We were created in God's image. And we're choosing to trust him. His ways are best. That's what I wish happened there. But that didn't happen. It's not that they want to be like God. They want to be God. That's the temptation. God's here. I want to be here. This temptation is a temptation to take good and evil and define it ourselves as opposed to trusting God. And so we see in the next verse, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, And he ate. Let's pause there for a second. Because up until this moment, it has been about God speaking, Adam and Eve responding, doing what what God said, trusting God. That's what's happened so far. This is the first point where there's a crossroads. Adam and Eve have a decision to make. Am I going to trust God for what is good and evil, or... Am I going to replace God and I define what is good and evil? What is the knowledge of good and evil? That's the problem that we see in this specific text. This becomes a world system. We see it laid out. Uh, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desired to make one wise. There is a world system that is now impacting the world that we're going to show. It's laced throughout the scriptures. I think that 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 really spells it out the best. And Let's just go to that and I'll show you. Uh, John, who is uh, the apostle, the beloved disciple, he writes this centuries later. And, and he says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So uh, some of your translations will say lust of, the, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the, pride, and the boastful pride of life. Some of your translations say it that way. Um, uh, that the idea is still that there is a world system, a pattern. And I want to tell us, I, I, like I, we need to be really clear about this reality. Something happened. Something happened at the fall that infected humanity. It changed everything. It, we are broken in ways that I don't think we're going to understand until we stand in eternity. That's what you meant? 
Well, yeah, we missed the mark on that. That is not what we experienced. That is not the way that we lived it out. So let's do some comparison in this. Let's take a moment and look at this. Let's look at uh, Genesis uh, 3, at 1 John 2, and let's identify the idol that's associated with it. Because again, what she's saying is these things, this stuff, trumps trusting God. So it's good for food. 1 John chapter 2 says that that's the desires of the flesh. The idol then is satisfaction. It's the fear of discomfort. It's food. It's shopping. It's affection. It's saying, uh, and by the way, I need to say, satisfaction, you can, ha- you can be satisfied in things. That's fine. But it's when we take satisfaction above God. I need this thing. I need this stuff to be satisfied. Well, yeah, and it's good that God loves me. But this is what really makes me happy. When we get to that place, it's called an idol. And we're saying, I know good from evil, and I know what I need better than God does. And that's, that's an idol. It's kind of a funny thing as we go through this. I, I can't help but to think of John Calvin. John Calvin was a great reformer. Uh, and, and one of the things that he said is that the human heart is an idol factory. Like We just keep making up idols. We do it all the time. It's really easy for us to do, but it started with the damage that occurred at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. The second one is the delight of the eyes. We're talking about the desires or the lust of the eyes. It's significance. Again, significance is okay, but when we put it above God, when we need significance, these things, more than we need God, it's a problem. It's the fear of people, it's performance, it's beauty, it's education level, it's status. When I need that more than I need God, when I choose what is good and what is evil, and I'm not trusting the Lord for it, it's a problem. It's an idol, and that idol is an idol of significance. And we have to be cautious, and we have to be careful. But it moves on. Desired to make one wise John calls that the pride of life. It's under the category of security. It's a fear of failure. Not just fear of failure, but it's also possessions. It's also wealth. It's also job. It's also control. It's also power. I need the security in my life more than I need God's presence. And let me tell you, I just, I just spoke to a, a missionary who spent a lot of time in Afghanistan w- with some believers in Afghanistan. And as I was talking to this missionary, I said, well, what, do you think, what do you think one of the struggles is here in the United States? As you look at Christianity from a few different perspectives, she said, I see the idol of security as trumping God. In other words, that, that in the United States, we're more concerned about, am I going to be safe? And am I going to have enough possessions for, uh, uh, for retirement? Am I going to have a job? Am I going to have this sort of power? We're more concerned about those things than trusting God. Again, those things are not bad things, but they happen under the authority of God. And the problem that we have is most often we say that it's under the authority of God, but really it's much higher. That's a problem. It occurred in the garden. It happened in the garden. 
it's about self. It's self-feeling, it's self-image, it's self-reliance. And these things are idols that we have to identify because they still impact us today. What happened in the garden spread like a contagion to humanity. And we have to identify that. Let's keep going. Verse 7 and 8. In verse 7 and 8, what I would like you to do is consider the relationships that are in this moment. Uh, So the relationship of Adam and Eve. The relationship of Adam and Eve with respect to God. Watch what happens. There is a subtle division that has occurred Early on, in the end of chapter 2, at the beginning of our message today, when we talked about the end of chapter 2, what we said was, they were naked and unashamed. They were fine. There was this intimacy and a trust that occurred. Watch what happens here. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And... They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's pause. So it's the first time that they had the sense of they needed to hide a part of themselves from the other. You can see this much, but nothing else. There is... Uh, implied a little bit later in verse 12, we'll see that there is a trust issue that has now occurred between Adam and Eve. They're separated. They're not as close as they were. There is division amongst them. Uh, It comes from hiding. It comes from trust. But also, there is this issue of God. Look at what they do. Up to this point, Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden. They were together with God. Now they're not just covering themselves. They're hiding from his presence altogether. It's the first time in creation that this happens. But it's a problem throughout uh, humanity that occurs again and again and again. It happens corporately and it happens individually. Hiding from God. It's a problem. Let's look at verse 9 through 11 now. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, uh, think about this. Let's let's just pause for a moment. You think God is walking around in the garden going, I put him in here somewhere. (laughs) No, no, I didn't step on him. Like, that's not what God is doing in this passage. He's not, uh, you know, he's not going, oh man, I guess we're playing hide and seek, those tricksters. Like, that's not what he's doing. But what he is doing is he's lamenting. Where are you? We were close. We walked together in this place. Where are you? You were created in my image to oversee my creation, to represent me in my creation. Where are you? And we see out of everyone in the garden that we've, the serpent, Adam, Eve, out of everybody so far, the one who should have been lamenting, you would not think is God, but it is God. Where are you, my creation? Those I love, those whom I made, those who I made in my image. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And this is what I like to call mama wisdom. Get ready. He said, Who told you that you were naked? I love it. I call that mama wisdom partly because of my own mama. 
Uh, I could give you many examples, but here's one that's, uh, that I can share on a Sunday. And, and this, is, this is what happened. We were in church, and, uh, and the pastor begins to pray. And my brother, whose name is Steve, he didn't have his eyes closed when the pastor was praying, and I noticed. So, uh, being a good son, I told my mom what had happened. Mom, Steve had his eyes open while the pastor was praying. And she said, how do you know that Steve had his eyes open while the pastor was praying? <laughs> That's mama wisdom. And we see it right here. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And now we're about to go into a part of uh, the, the scriptures that I like to call the blame game. And here we go. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Like, listen to Adam. God says, uh, did you eat of the fruit? That woman. That woman did it. And you know what? You're the one who gave her to me. What's Adam saying? It's not my fault. I'm the victim here. God, look, it was that woman. And if anybody's to blame, it's her. But if there's nobody else, it's you. Uh, I'm like way down the list here. I'm the victim, God. God's having none of it. He moves on. Whoops, let me go back. Uh, Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? So the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Like I was tricked. What? Do you know that sometimes we believe things that we want to believe even when we know that they're not true? I I wonder if that was her situation. I wonder. Uh, That's total projection. That is not a pastoral statement. That's just Kenny wondering. I wonder. But there's a blame game going on, a shifting. And the only one who seems brokenhearted about it is God. And so God has to address this. Uh, Because again, this is God's story woven through humanity in such a way that God wants humanity to respond in faith to him. And so the Lord begins to deal with it in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Pause. I'm about to go to a place that might blindside you. In just a moment, we're going to read the next slide, uh, the next verse, and it may blindside you. I, I want you to know that we're going to this place with a lot of um, respect, with um, love, and with truth. And we have to look at the Word of God in the context that it's given to us and in the broader context that we see things lived out. I think you'll see what I mean, but I want you to know when we start to go there, there may be uh, an easy response to pull away and stop listening, and I want to encourage you to lean in and listen closer. So here we go. I will put enmity between you and the woman. The word enmity there is one of those unique words. It means to actively oppose. It means to be hostile toward. 
and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. So those who are in rebellion and those who I created to be in my likeness. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is a, uh, this, this is believed to be the first prophecy in scripture about the coming Messiah. But it, it, it comes with a little bit of like, oh, what is it, what's being said here? We recognize that whoever the seed is that we later learn to be the Messiah, he's going to step on the head of the serpent. But it's going to come with a strike on his heel. And we recognize that ultimately that's talking about Jesus. Uh, we recognize that ultimately Jesus gets the victory, right? We recognize that ultimately uh, death has been swallowed up in victory. We recognize that death no longer has a sting. We recognize that death doesn't have a victory anymore. And we see it uh, as a part of a prophecy right here. However, and this is the big however, there is enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. How has that come up? How has that happened? It happens a variety of ways. When we fast forward to Exodus, one of the ways that we see this happen is that the children of Israel are slaves in Egypt. As they're slaves in Egypt, they begin to multiply. They're healthy. And there are many. And they start to outnumber the Egyptians. Pharaoh's response to that is this. Kill the babies. If there are baby boys, kill them at birth. That's his response. Enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, there are some other scriptures in the Old Testament that also might imply it, but let's fast forward to the New Testament because we see it in a very, uh, a very clear path. Herod becomes concerned that uh, the king of Israel is born. And his response is very much like Pharaoh's. Everybody to and under in Bethlehem where this king is supposed to be born, murder, kill. There is enmity there. When we look back, when we pull away and we look at humanity, uh, we also have to recognize that in the Greek and Roman culture, both abortion and infanticide uh, is commonplace. And, and in fact, it's embraced in many ways. The early church recognized that because that was the culture that they were living in. And suddenly people were starting to come to Christ uh, out of these Roman and Greek-influenced cultures. And they had to make some decisions. Like, how are we going to be disciples and follow Jesus? And one of the things that the early church did is uh, they wrote a, uh, a discipleship book and a church manual, and this is called the Didache, the Didache. Uh, it comes from the early church. It was embraced uh, by the church in the first, second centuries and, uh, and has been used in a variety of ways throughout. But one of the things that they identify is that abortion and infanticide uh, is, is not okay. That, that is not God's plan. That is not how... Uh, we, we follow God, and specifically, this is enmity between the seed of the rebellion and the seed of those who are created in God's image. As I was considering this, I reached out to 
uh, a lady. Her name's Carrie Beaner. Carrie Beaner is the program manager from Conquerors. Conquerors, their, uh, their, their tagline is restoring hope after abortion. And one of the things that she reminded me was that 62 million abortions have happened in the United States since 1973. Additionally, one in four women by the time they turn 45 has had an abortion. Some numbers that go along with this, and I, I want to tell you that I'm not, this is not meant to shame. That's not the, that's not the point. It's to identify the, the depth of enmity between the serpent and the rebellion versus the seed of those who are created in God's image. Listen, and those one in four, 70% of women indicated that their religion is Christian. Out of those 70%, 52% self-identify as evangelicals who attend church once or twice per month, strongly agree with the statement, abortion is a sin. Now, again, here is where things start to get uh, even more difficult. Carrie also shared with me some symptoms of post, post-abortion stress. Here are some of them. Suicidal fault, thoughts and impulses, anxiety, fear of others, finding out, low self-esteem, grief, depression, anger towards self and others, guilt, shame, emotional triggers, unhealthy relationships, eating disorders, uh, uncon- I'm sorry, isolation or feeling alone, fear, God is or will punish them, Workaho- work, uh, being a workaholic, being a perfectionist, fear of getting too close to others are a few symptoms that, are, that have been given. Again, why am I sharing this? Well, I'm sharing this because of the enmity between the seed of rebellion and the seed of those who are created in the image of God. Also, I recognize that in a room this size, that there is a high probability that there is someone who has either experienced abortion or uh, who's been a part of a family that has experienced abortion. And this can be a very difficult thing. The intention today is not to shame you. In fact, it's to give you hope that there is a Messiah that comes from this place that is willing to restore that which is broken back to that which is good, that which is whole. Uh, Conquerors has, have programs. If you are, uh, have dealt with that, if that's been an impact in your life, I want to encourage you. Conquerors has some great programs that they can walk through. But even more than that, I want you to know that as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Somebody said, in fact, between services, I asked, uh, a, a question to uh, Carrie Beaner. And I, I, I said, well, is there anything that I should share from up front that would be helpful? And she said, yeah, uh, there are a couple of things. Uh, one of those things is this, that God knows that baby and that one day you'll see that baby if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and that there is healing and there is hope in Christ, and you can come out of the darkness and into the light. In other words, you don't have to uh, stay in that place of, uh, of feeling like you're, you're judged or you're unloved or you're not cared for in the church. There is a place of hope 
and we want you to have that hope. Uh, as we go through the scriptures, some of these type of things come up. These things would not have come up if we wouldn't have had a fall in Genesis chapter 3. But we did. And we're dealing with the consequences. And we're dealing with the God who's weaving his story throughout humanity to still offer life today. And he is. Let's keep going. In verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of, uh, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So let, let's do some compare and contrast. Let's look at some actions of those who were present. And let's see some results of that. For the serpent, who is the devil, he's a deceiver. Listen, Jesus spoke about this in John 10.10. 10. He said it this way. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. Uh, he's going to deceive. One of his favorite tactics is to doubt God's word. I'm not saying we shouldn't test God's word. I'm not saying we shouldn't challenge God's word. Uh, challenge in a good way. Like challenge like, show me that it's true. Like we should do that. What I am saying is doubting that it's God's word. That's where the problem is. And that's Satan's first line of, of attack. The consequence, the results are he crawls around. By the way, I don't necessarily think that um, every, every snake is Satan. That's, you know, so when you see a snake, you're like, oh, that's because of the garden. Well, it is, but I think the, the point that is, being, that is being stated by God is that, that the snake is lower than humanity. Humanity stands above it. Satan is below uh, those who are redeemed, those people are faith, those people who have received Jesus as their Savior, those people who uh, have been redeemed and have been restored to the image bearers of Christ. They're below. Also, Satan is our nemesis. He's against us. There is always going to be enmity there, and he's always going to attack the most vulnerable. He'll do it every time. He steals, he kills, and he destroys. Be careful. Be wise. But ultimately, He's defeated. In Revelation chapter 20, we see that in a great way. For a thousand years, he's bound. But then ultimately, he's cast into the fire. Amen. He's cast into the fire, and it's gone completely, forever. Eve, she wanted to be like God. And she invited Adam to participate. And because of that, there was a curse associated with it, and we're all still living uh, with the ramifications of that curse. Adam wanted to be like God, and he participated. And there's a curse associated with that. And we're all living with the ramifications of that curse. But look at God. What did God do? First of all, he looks for Adam and Eve. He looks for them. And he lamented the situation. What does that tell you about the character of God? I want to tell you that it doesn't matter what sin that we're bringing to the table. 
That God is looking and God is lamenting and calling us back into that relationship. We see that ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And we're going to cover that in just a moment. He communicates consequences, but then he clothes Adam and Eve. And I would say this is another prophecy. That God is the one who's going to clothe. And he's not going to do it with uh, fig leaves. He's going to do it with skin. And we see that God comes in the flesh and dwells among us. We'll see a little bit later how he becomes our covering, our clothing. Humanity. Humanity. So uh, oftentimes I hear this, like, Adam and Eve were so stupid. What were they thinking? As if we stand on higher moral ground, right? Like, uh, well, here's the reality. We've all been at that crossroads and we've all chosen sin. And all have sinned and all are dealing with the consequences of the curse. But the result is there is still opportunity to be restored. Galatians 3 reminds us that those who are in Christ are clothed in Christ. We don't have to be naked and ashamed. We are covered by Him. It's taken care of. Additionally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we identify that death came through the first Adam. But the second Adam is Christ. And through the second Adam, there is life and restoration. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone. Jesus took care of it. But we have a choice. And the choice, just like Adam and Eve, will I choose to define the knowledge of good and evil? Or will I trust God? And that's where we find ourselves today, asking these questions what will our results be? How will we choose? One of the reasons I love that we're doing communi- uh, communion weekly is because we, we come to this crossroads every week where we're saying, I'm choosing to continue to follow Jesus. Not that we lose our salvation, that's not even the point, but that we're publicly affirming once again, I follow Jesus. I'm following Jesus. But we're given a command in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that's to examine ourselves. Is there any unconfessed sin? If so, let's deal with it. Let's deal with it. And this is a a time, a good place to deal with any unconfessed sin. To say, God, before you, I don't want to hide. I am, this is me and this is what I have done. Will you forgive me? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's not a get out of jail free card. But that's a reality of the goodness of God and the restoration process that he gives. It may not just be vertical. It might also be horizontal, as is the case with Adam and Eve. But it may look like this. We may go up to somebody, maybe they're even here today, and we say, I I just, I've sinned against you, and this is what I did. And would you forgive me? Most likely they'll say yes. But they might also say, yes, I do forgive you, but we need to talk more about this. In either case, we're free to participate in communion, taking the body, being reminded of the body that was broken, the restoration and the blood that Jesus has given, paying a debt that we can't pay. It's a beautiful thing. And at, at Friendship, we practice it maybe a different way than, than the way you have in the past, and that's fine. You'll notice some carpeted areas Uh, we ask you to take some time and examine your heart. And after you have the freedom in Christ to move forward, we ask you to come down the carpeted area, whichever area is convenient for you, and make your way to 
uh, one of the, uh, the stations. If you're on this side of the room, to that station. This side of the room, to that station. And then to go in the outer uh, back to your seat. Uh, once you get there, to wait, we'll, we'll participate together uh, a little bit later in the service. Now, in saying this, I also recognize that uh, there may be a situation where it's difficult for whatever reason for you to come forward and participate. If you wave your hands, uh, we have some people that will be available, some ushers and greeters that are they're in the room and they're looking. We want to serve you at your seat if you need that. We're happy to do that. In the meantime, let's pause before the Lord, and as you feel uh, the, the peace of God to move forward, feel free to move to the station and wait for everyone before we participate together.